chapter 1, reading through verse 8. And the word of the Lord says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord again this morning. Uh, grateful to be gathering again. It's not about numbers that I, I care about coming into the house, whether it's one person or 101 person. It's, it's being faithful and being obedient to what God's called us to. What God's called us to is to gather as the saints. He, he says uh, from the Apostle Paul, let us never neglect gathering together. Uh, and so that, that's what is my main concern. It's not how many people are in the building, but are we being obedient uh, to what he's called us to, and that is coming together as a church uh, to, to gather to worship him, to hear his word, and to fellowship with one another. So grace and peace to you this morning. Uh, just as a way of announcements, three announcements. This morning we are taking up the Annie Armstrong offering. Uh, that offering is for the North American Mission Board. That's for all of our missionaries in North America, both in the U.S. and Canada. It's the way all of our missionaries are able to stay on the field. Uh, so every dollar, every penny that goes into that offering uh, will go straight back into uh, the North American Mission Board, but not uh, for the financial pieces of it, but it's simply to help our missionaries stay on the field. So uh, any money that you can give, any offering that you can give would be uh, well appreciated. That is this morning. Uh, if you haven't made arrangements for that, we'll have it again next week. But please uh, make an offering for the North American Mission Board. Uh, also, uh, on May the 2nd at uh, 9 o'clock, we will gather again for Sunday school. Um, so we will start again Sunday, Sunday school, May the 2nd at, at 9 o'clock. Uh, and last but not least, congratulations to Lance and Deborah. They had their baby girl this week. Mommy and baby doing well, Lance? Amen. Praise God for a new baby. Let's give God a round uh, for that. We'll be praying for you, Lance, to get much sleep. I, I remember those days. We're uh, excited for the baby. It's like, man, I can't remember which way is up, down, left, or right um, in most mornings. So. Praise God for that healthy baby and healthy mama. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive into the book of Colossians this morning. God, we come and we offer ourselves, as you've called us to uh, in Romans, to offer ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice that would be pleasing and acceptable, acceptable to you. I pray that we would do that now before we even enter into your word. I pray that there's anything in our lives, even in this moment, that would hinder us from hearing and receiving the word, that we would repent and turn from it 
and, and then come to you and, and say, as you call us to have your will in our lives. So I pray for that. For myself as I teach, I pray for that for the hearers as they hear. Lead us, guide us as we look at this great book, this great little letter by the Apostle Paul to this small church um, over 2,000 years ago. But this letter serves as a purpose for us and a reminder for us this morning. And so I pray that you would awaken our hearts to what you would have for us. Pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Just as a way to introduction into the book or the letter of the Colossians. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul. We'll see that here in the first verse. The city of Colossae was about 110 miles inland. It was about 110 miles from uh, the, the, the other letter that he wrote, um, Ephesians, the, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a thriving city. And this many scholars believe that a, a pastor or a person, a lay person from that church in Ephesus was called by God to go and plant uh, a church here in Colossae. And so uh, we see who did that. That was Epaphras. Epaphras was the, one of the right-hand men of Paul when Paul went on his second missionary journey. Uh, he got converted to the Lord and then this awakening to God and to the presence of God and to the things of God gave him a heartbeat to go and plant the church. And so he went and planted a church. Uh, that church met in the house of um, Philemon. Philemon, as you know, is another book or letter in uh, that Paul wrote. And so many scholars believe that Philemon was uh, opened his house so that Epaphras could come and minister to uh, this uh, group of believers that began to to rise up in Colossae. Uh, we we know very little about this city at 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 six at sixty A.D. Uh, between 60 and 62 A.D., the, the historians aren't exactly sure, a massive earthquake uh, hit the city of, of Colossae. And we have no other record outside of this book um, from then on. No, nothing is ever mentioned uh, about the city. Many scholars believe that the city was so destroyed and the people in the city were so heartbroken that they never returned back. Um, it, it's in modern-day Turkey. You can see where it's at. It's all that's left of it is this uh, hill of rubble uh, from that earthquake. But it leads us to ask this question, out of all the letters, all the books of the Bible, why would God in his goodness and his sovereignty uh, keep this book in uh, the 66th book? I, I believe it's because of this purpose. This book serves uh, one purpose and one purpose only over and over and over again, we're going to see, and the, the, the title of this series is uh, the, the Supremacy of Christ. You will see Paul writing to these believers. I believe if we would open our hearts and ears, he, would, he is saying it to us today. Everything about this book will show us and point us to the supremacy of Christ. You see, what was happening in that day, what, what many believe what was happening was this young core group of believers that were meeting in this house church were on fire for the Lord. They loved the Lord. But then there's this group of people that came alongside the Gnostics, came and began to preach a different gospel. And that gospel was no longer that, hey, it's by Christ and Christ alone that you're saved, but it's Christ plus. 
these things that you're saved. That you have to do these things in order to get your salvation and these things that you have to do to maintain your salvation. And, and so what Paul was gonna, is going to say to us and to these people, no, it's the supremacy of Christ. He is the one that holds our salvation. He's the one that has gifted us our salvation. And I believe if we look today at our own culture, is that not true for us? Many of us, we wouldn't say it quite like this, but it's true. It would be Jesus plus equals our salvation. That we have to have Jesus plus these things. Or Jesus and, well, you can have this religion and Jesus and still get to heaven. We see that in culture all over the place. Culture is beginning to infiltrate the church and the gospel to, to water down the gospel. That's because the gospel is super offensive. It's super offensive. If you just take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it's really, really offensive to people that have not been awakened to the truths of God. You see, because the gospel says this, that there's good news, that Christ came to bring us to salvation, which means there's got to be bad news to the good news. The bad news is you're dying and going to hell without Jesus. The good news says this, there's only one way to Christ. To, to God, it's through Christ Jesus. But the world says, no, there's multiple ways. You see, the gospel says this is how we are to be married. The world is saying, no, no, you, you can be married however you want. You see, the gospel is going to point us to how we are to live life. And it's becoming more and more and more offensive to this world. And my great fear for us as a church, my great fear for the universalist church is we're beginning to believe the lies of the world and because we're believing the lies of the world we're dumbing down the gospel because we dumb down the gospel we dumb down ourselves and so we'll say well i'll read the bible and i'll read something else jesus plus equals salvation no the truth is christ plus nothing equals salvation it's through christ and christ alone we must Herald his word. And so that's where this book comes from. This young group of believers, it's about a five-year-old church. They were on fire for the Lord, and now they begin to believe in something contrary to the gospel. And you'll see Paul, throughout his letter, point them back to Christ. My great hope for us in this series over the next 14 or 15 weeks is that we would be pointed back to Christ. And that everything that we would say, everything that we would think would come through the lens of the gospel. In two or three weeks, we're going to get to Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. It's the greatest hymn I believe that's ever been written about Christ. That is a hymn. I, I know it doesn't look like a hymn. It's not written like a hymn. But it is a hymn. It is a song that Paul wrote about the supremacy of Christ. He is the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in him, heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities or rulers, all things were created through him and what? For him. Everything that's been created by God the Father, through Christ Jesus speaking it, Logos, the word, was from him and for him. That's why so many theologians say this. 
It is for the glory of God that we're here. And this book is going to point us back that if we would get the, 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 the book, we would understand and apply this book, we would live lives that would glorify God. My great fear is that we're no longer glorifying God because it's the gospel plus something else. When it's the gospel plus anything else, there's no glory to God. And we, the church, not just Powell's Chapel, but the universal church, must be pointed back to the glory of God. And so that's where he starts, right out of the gate. This morning's message is labeled the fruit of the gospel. And the fruit of the gospel, even in these first eight verses, is going to point us back to what the gospel does to us and what our response is to the gospel. And so Paul is writing and he says these things. The first thing is this, remember who you are this morning. Remember who you are. Who are we as a church? Who are we as believers? The Apostle Paul comes right out of the gates and he says it this way in the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is saying already, hey, don't listen to me. He doesn't say Paul, the great missionary. He doesn't say Paul, the, 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 the great church planner, though he was both the greatest missionary the world's ever seen, the greatest church planner the, the world has ever seen. No, he says this, hey, I'm Paul, an apostle, or a sent one, a called one, to herald the word of God. Many people believe, and I believe this true, he's the last true apostle. The last true person that God used to speak directly in him and then through him. And so Paul is saying, it's not me that you are to look to, it's Christ in me you are to look at. I am the apostle. I'm the one that is speaking to you, but it's not my authority. The words that you're going to read, this is not my authority. This is the apostleship or the called words of God to you. And he says, I'm the apostle of who? Christ Jesus. You see, in that day, there was many apostles. There was many, many people that claimed to be apostles, and they were apostles, apostles of the Roman Empire. Ones that were called by the Roman Empire to go and give news about what's happening in Rome. And so what Paul is saying, I'm not an apostle of the Roman Empire. I'm not an apostle of man, but I'm an apostle, chosen one by God. And he says, by what? The will of God. It's God's will that I speak these things, not my will. And Timothy, our brother. So this letter is written by Paul. Many people believe that Paul, and when you read the letter, it's amazing if you think about where Paul is sitting. Paul is not on some beautiful island, kicked back, watching the ocean roll in, drinking a daiquiri. He's not chilling on the beach. He's not some vacation writing and penning this letter about the supremacy of Christ. He's in prison. And as he's in prison, a horrible, horrible, horrible place to be. You can see how he's writing, but he has this great promise in who God is and who Christ is. He is not on vacation. He is under immense suffering, immense persecution. And yet he's going to, in his circumstances, point us back to Christ Jesus, who he says is supreme over all things, even in his imprisonment. So it's, You've got to know where he's writing this letter from. He's not at the beach. He is in prison. 
And then he says this. He's going to remind them. He's reminding us today who we are. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, that's his child in the faith. He had discipled Timothy. We know that he wrote two letters to Timothy. Timothy is his protege. He's going to hand all this stuff off when Paul dies. He is going to put Timothy into that place. Another great missionary, another great pastor. So he's been training Timothy. And so he and Timothy, Timothy most likely is visiting him in prison, uh, caretaking him and caring for him. So they write this letter together. Many scholars believe that Epaphras came to Paul in prison with what was going on in uh, the city, that he came to prison and said, hey, this place that you planted five years ago, the, the, the false doctrine starting to come in. And so Paul, the, the father, if you will, to this small church, writes a letter to bring them back to faith. But in verse 2, he reminds them, and I believe he's reminding us this morning of who we are. Four things he reminds them. He says to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The four things that we see are this. The first is this, that they are holy ones, saints. That's what the word saint means. It's not like St. Peter that the Catholic Church uh, saints. These are ones, saints are the idea that God has called them out. They're called out by God. And so Paul automatically goes to them and reminds them, hey, remember that you were called by God. You are holy ones. That God in his goodness, his sovereignty, his kindness to you, called him to, your, to himself. You have been set apart by God for God. But that would have startled their minds, you see, if you remember up until this point, the only holy ones or the only called out ones were who? The Israelites. He's writing to primarily Gentiles. Gentiles were pagans. They were wicked, wicked people. You and I are Gentiles. We're pagans. But Paul is reminding them that, no, not only are Israelites the called out ones, but now you in Christ Jesus, see in a moment, are called out by God. Even us as pagans have been called out by God. We are now considered holy. We are now considered chosen by God. We are the church. This goes all the way back to what we studied in Genesis 12. Remember what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God's promise to Abraham would, I would bless you and make you and many nations be holy. So we see all the way back God's fulfillment to the promise of Abraham here to this small church, and he's reminding them of that. They've been grafted in to this family. That is true for us today, church. Are we being reminded that we are holy ones of God, called out by God, set apart for God? I'd ask this question this morning. Do we live that? Holy ones set apart. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may 
proclaim the excellence of him who called you what out of darkness into light. We must remember first and foremost, church, that we are holy ones. We are saints, not because of anything we've done, but simply God's calling us to himself. The next thing that he says this, not only are you saints, not only are you holy ones, but you are what? Faithful. He said you are faithful brothers in Christ. Another way to say this in the Greek would be this. You are believers. You are believing. It carries the idea that we are not dependent on ourselves, but we are dependent on God. Are we faithful, believing? And is our dependence on God or on ourselves or on this world? You see, Paul is reminding them of their dependency. You are holy and you're dependent on God. I'd ask us, church, this morning, Where's our dependency? Is it on God or this world or the things of this world? Because Paul is going to continue to point them back. Hey, what the Gnostics are telling you is simply not true. Don't depend on the things of the world. Remember, your dependence is on God and God alone. It's where our salvation comes from. Then he says this, so we're saints. We're faithful. And then he says this, we are brothers. That word can also mean sisters, brothers and sisters. What Paul is saying, let me remind you, you're not only called out ones. You're not only believers, but now you're part of a family. He's reminding them of their need for one another. Church, How has our need for one another, where has that gone? That's the purpose of gathering. It's not gathering so that I can have more people to teach and talk to. The gathering of believers is so our dependence becomes for one another. It's what happens in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. The the body of believers became a family and they needed one another for survival. They were a true family. I don't believe that we act like family members. I'll get to that here in a moment. Paul is reminding them that they have been adopted into the family. So they have brothers and sisters, and now they have a God who is not only God, but is also their father. And in being his father, they will care for him. So we've been adopted. This is what John tells us in John chapter 1, verses uh, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. If you are in Christ Jesus, you've been born again, and you've been born into a family. It's what Paul says in Romans 8. For all who have been led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. Or daughters of God. Or in the family of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received what? The spirit of adoption as sons and daughters who cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness of our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And if children of God, then heirs. And not only heirs of God, but what? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also glorify, be glorified in him. 
you, you see, when you come into the faith, you become sons of God. You are adopted in. Or as Paul later on says, you are grafted in to this family. So Paul says that we, we are what? We are holy ones. We are faithful, believing ones. We are in a family together. And then he says this. This is all wrapped up, and this all happens because of one reason and one reason only. Because you are what? In Christ. It's being in Christ that we're able to be called holy ones. It's because we're in Christ that we can believe and have be faithful witnesses. It's because of being in Christ that we can be a family. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And it is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And he who has also put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, being in Christ means you are sealed. He says later on that nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. It's as if God himself put you in the Jesus jar, sealed it, and canned it. Nothing can take you out of being canned, if you will, in Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. Over and over in this book, over and over in the letters of Paul, he says that over and over again. You are in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, in Christ Jesus is in you. It's like this double whammy. We're in Christ, but because Christ we are in him. Christ is also in us. That's what gives us hope is having our firm foundation, our sonship, our adoptionship in Christ and Christ alone. And he says nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hands. You are sealed. You see, what was happening was the Gnostics were saying, no, no, you can lose your salvation. You can be taken out of the can. You can be taken out of Christ. No, no, if you are saved this morning, there's nothing that you can do that can take you outside of being saved. You cannot lose your salvation. Because it's not you who put you in salvation, it's God who put you in salvation. Therefore, God cannot lose what he's already saved. You are saved if you have placed your hope and faith in Christ and nothing can remove you of that. So he says, that's who you are. And he says, now as a result of that being who you are, he says, this is the result, or this is what you have, because you are holy ones, you're faithful, you're in the family, and you're in Christ Jesus. He says two things, grace to you and peace from God. He says, so remember who you are, and as a result of who you are, this is what happens for you. You get two things from God. You get grace from God, and you get peace with God. Grace is an unmerited gift that we get because of what God has done for us. Unmerited meaning we do not deserve the grace of God. We, we can't earn our way into grace. Again, Paul is going to continue to push back against what society is saying. Earn grace, earn grace, earn grace. No, grace is a free gift of God so what? That no one should boast. It's unmerited. What you and I deserve is not grace. It's wrath. But when we're in Christ, Christ's gift to us is 
grace from God? Do we live as grace-filled people? Being reminded every morning, this is a free gift of God, that God's wrath is not being poured out onto me. You see, but it can't just be grace, Paul says. It's also what? On the other hand, when you have grace with God, you will have peace with God. Peace carries this idea that because the unmerited favor of God, we now don't have to live in fear of the wrath of God. I just wonder, church, how often we don't live as grace-filled, peace-filled people. So we think we have to keep working and working and working and working to earn God's grace so we can live in peace with God. And Paul says, no, 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 just remember what God's done for you in Christ Jesus. And because of all that Christ has done for you and you're in Christ Jesus, you ought to walk around being reminded of the grace of God and the peace of God that you now have. Thank God for his grace and thank God for his peace. Amen? We don't live like that. And now he says, the rest of the passage, verses 3 through 8, hey, remembering who you are, remembering what God has done for you, remembering where you come from, he says now, now remember how you ought to live. Now when we come to Christ, it ought to change how we live. We can't come to Christ and keep living the way we've always lived. That doesn't, that doesn't say to us there's any salvation into us. If you've had a real encounter with Christ, the way you live will automatically change if there's been real repentance. That's what repentance is. I'm going this way, and I come face to face with God's grace and peace, so I'm going to live this way. I go the opposite direction. So if you're still living the way you live before, before you came to Christ, I'd say, I don't know if you've come to know Christ. Because every time in the Gospels or in the New Testament, when someone had an encounter with Jesus, they radically changed. It wasn't like, oh, they, they kind of changed. Like, no, they radically changed. And so Paul's going to say, if you've really had this encounter with Christ, and you're in Christ, then your behavior ought to look different. And then he says, these are the three things, the three pillars of our faith. This is how we ought to look and live differently. He, he starts it with a prayer. But his prayer is thanking God how they're living differently. He says, we, that's Timothy and he, always give thanks to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of what? We're going to pray because we've heard of your faith. So the first thing in our life that changes is our faith. Or what we put our dependence in. Or what we believe in. But see, if I just simply put my thought process into something and my faith doesn't lead me to change, then I really have no change at all. You see, I can have faith that Rob's truck's going to go up a mountain and, and it's going to get me there safely. Because that's a sweet truck out there. But if my faith doesn't move me to action to get into the truck to put me up the mountain, then I have no faith at all. 
And I wonder, church, how often we say, yes, we have faith in Christ, but our faith isn't moving us to action to show what we're saying we have faith about. You see, faith without action is no faith at all. It's what James says, faith without works is dead. And so Paul is saying, I thank God for your faith, not just that you say you have faith, but your faith is leading you to live different lives. And we must remember how we are to live. Do we live as faithful people, putting our faith in the things that we say we put them in? Does your life and faith in Christ make you live differently? Because then he says this, you have faith in Christ. Not only do you have faith in Christ, not only do we pray and we heard and we seen your faith in Christ, but we have heard and seen of what? The love that you have for all the saints. So he's saying because your life in Christ leads you to faith, your faith leads you to live different. The way it's leading you to live differently is through you how you love people, primarily the saints, primarily the church. So he's saying we've heard and seen your faith, but we've seen and heard how your faith is moving you to love people. That ask the church, myself included, does my faith move me to love people unconditionally the way Christ did? Do I have love for the saints? Do we, House Chapel, really love one another? Jesus says this, love has no, there's no greater love than this, that we would lay our lives down for one another. Would we do that for everyone in these pews? This is what Jesus says in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He'd already given them the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others the way you love yourself. But then he says, hey, I'm going to give you another commandment. He says, this is a new commandment that I give you. That you what? Love one another just as I have loved you. So he said, I'm going to give you a new commandment that you're to love one another but this is how I want you to love one another the way that I loved you, which was sacrificial. And it's going to be sacrificial. And it's going to be laying my life down for you. That's how I want you to love one another. And then he says this. He doesn't stop there. He says, you are to love one another. By this, all people, that's both in the church and out of the church, you want to know how to be one of the greatest evangelists or missionaries the world had ever seen? Love each other. The church, I'm not talking about people outside the church. I'm saying love us in the church. He says, by this, the way that you love one another, the church, he says, this, all people, just a little Greek lesson, all always means all. It doesn't mean some or a few. It always means all. He says, all people, both saved and unsaved, will know that you're my disciples, will know that you follow me, will know that you're a believer. By the way, we what? Love one another. You want to know how to love one another? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
He says, this is how you are to love one another. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Let me read that one more time. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice in the wrongdoings, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. And so Paul is saying to that small church, hey, I know about your faith, but I want to remind you you were to continue to love one another. And then he says this. So we're to have faith in our living. We have love in our living. But he says this. And the love that you have for all, verse 5, because of what? Of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. He says this. This is how you are able to love and have faith. It's due to the hope that you have. And what's our hope? Our hope is laid up for us in heaven. Our hope is the gift of eternal life. Our hope is that we placed our lives in the hands of Jesus. Therefore, we have hope. And it's out of hope. The hope is I can live faithfully to God. And I can love other people regardless. Because it's not about this hope of this world. It's about the hope that's going to come. And so I'd ask the church this morning this. Do you have a hope that leads you to live a life of faith? And do you have a hope that leads you to a life of love? Over and over in Paul's writing, he says, these three things are the pillar of our faith. Faith, hope, and love. And he says this, love is the greatest one of all. Because it reminds us of what the love of the Father gave us in Christ Jesus. He laid, loved us and laid his life down for us. He says all this. He says, this is the hope that you have. It's laid up for you. Of this that you've heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the world would be bearing fruit and it's increasing, as it is also does among you since the day that it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so what Paul is saying, this is how it happened. You want to know how all this happened? How you and I are saints and faithful and brothers and are in Christ and we have faith and we have hope and we have love. The way you have all this is how? Because you heard the gospel and you responded to the gospel. It is out of the gospel that brings those fruit in our lives. So have you this morning heard the truth of the gospel? That's what he says. All this is happening because you have heard it and you understood it and it's the grace of God. Meaning what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. It is for grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. He's saying, hey, 
the gospel came to you. You did not come to the gospel and the gospel came to you. You heard it and understood it because God did something for you, not because you did anything for God. Don't ever forget that. And he's saying now because of what you've heard and you've understood because of the work of God in your life, you're able to have these things. And then he says this in verses 7 and 8, and then I'll close. He said, you understood the grace of God in truth, just as you have learned it from who? Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. As he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. In closing, I'd say this as a reminder. Do you remember who your Epaphras was? who taught you the grace of God, who taught you the word of God, who sat with you and pointed out all the places in Scripture for you. It was your Epaphras. Then my question is this. Who are you going to be an Epaphras to? In closing, turn with me. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Romans chapter 10. This is what Epaphras did. Those few saints that gathered. says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 10 and following. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. The heart and the mouth through confession and believing that they're saved. He says this in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, that's Christ, will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who would call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will what? Be saved. And then he asks a question. How will they be saved? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says this, how then will they call on him who they not believe? And how will they believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so I would say to you, it is not my job primarily to preach to your unbelieving friends. It is my job to equip you to go preach to your unbelieving friends so that why you could be an Epaphras to somebody. You see, Paul had never been to that church. They had never met Paul face to face. But what they did, they had met Paul through Epaphras because Paul sent Epaphras 
to that young church to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And he preached it and proclaimed it and people came to faith. And so my question to you is twofold. Do you remember who your Epaphras was? Who preached the good news to you? But you cannot stop there. Who will you be an Epaphras to? Who will you preach the good news to? So that the same way it could be true of them as it is for us, that they would be saints, that they would be faithful, that they would be adopted into this family, that they would be in Christ, that they would live faithful lives, loving other people in the church, and they would have the hope of eternal salvation. Let us be reminded of who we are. Let us be reminded of what God's called us to. And let us be reminded that we are to be sent ones of God to preach and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to lost people. That is what was happening in the church. Let it happen here in our church. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would use us. That you would remind us of who we are. That we are holy ones. Because of your work, we believe we are grafted in as brothers and sisters into this great family because of what Christ has done for us. And out of that, God, I pray that we'd be saints that live lives of faith, that live lives of love, that live lives hoping in what is to come because of the gospel. And we would then go preach Proclaim the word to lost people. I've been so convicted this week in reading Luke chapter 10, verse 2. God, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We pray earnestly that you would send us into the harvest to preach and proclaim the good news to lost people. God, that verse is so simple, but yet so profound. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. God, if we just go work the fields, we will see salvation. We will see repentance. We will see the church grow. That's a promise in your word. The harvest is plentiful. All we have to do is go and work the fields. I pray you give us great courage to go and work the fields. You are a great God, doing great things. And I'm grateful for your salvation today in my life and the lives of your people that are in here this morning. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Please rise for the benediction this morning. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Grace and peace be with you this morning.